Okay. I've heard the first half of Mark's gospel, uh, which we've been going through, called a book of questions. And then I've heard the second half of Mark's gospel called the book of the Christ, which answers the questions. And so the fundamental question that's dominated the whole first half of Mark's gospel is this. Who is Jesus? This is his fundamental question. The fascinating thing is that he actually gives us his answer. Chapter 1, verse 1. Okay? That's right. He actually answers his fundamental question before he asks it, which is really, it's really fascinating. And he says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He gives you his answer in his very first sentence. He wants there to be no doubt in the reader's mind who he believes Jesus to be. And so the question is, who is Jesus? It requires a response. He was asking for a response then. This question requires a response right now. And the, how we answer that question actually influences how we answer the next question, which is, what is a disciple? Or what does a follower of this Jesus actually look like? Because ultimately, how we live our lives is going to show the world around us exactly what we really believe about Jesus. And so Mark, what he wants is clearly he wants his readers to adopt his answer. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Um, and I was thinking about this. Like, so far, we've been in this for two months or so, how many people in the Gospel of Mark have actually confessed Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of God? Anybody? Has anyone noticed, has anyone answered this question so far in the Gospel of Mark? Jeff's thinking, you've got, what do you think? Perfect. Okay, that's correct. The answer is no one except the unclean spirits, is the scriptural language, that recognize who Jesus is. Not even the people closest to him have yet made this confession. Eight chapters of good news, every teaching, every healing has been inviting a response from people to respond to that question. Here are just a few of the basic responses that we've seen so far. The disciples, what they ask is this. They say, who is this? They answer the question with a question. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The scribes and the Pharisees, they respond to who is Jesus by calling him a blasphemer. And we saw that the people of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, they answered the question, isn't this Joseph? the day laborer's son? Those are three basic responses that we have seen up until this point. They're all struggling to answer the question, but so far none of them have given Mark's answer yet. The gospel is going to invite us to respond even when the characters in the story don't. Let's pray. Almighty God, your son, our savior Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Grant that your people, illumined by your word, would shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that the world would come to know of your incredible love in Jesus. Amen. We're going to watch as Peter moves, and you're going to see his movement throughout today's story. We're going to watch as he moves from confession to confrontation to total 
confusion. <laughs> Sounds like good news, huh? Let's do this. Mark 8, 27 to 9, 8. Here we go. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them to not tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and to forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in, his, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, John, led them up a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore but only Jesus. The word of the Lord. Jesus chooses this moment at this city in Caesarea Philippi to ask a direct question that pertains to his identity. But why here? Why now? There's probably some good reasons for this. This city was home to many big temples to the gods. There was a huge temple to the Syrian god Baal, a Greek god Pan, and there was a another temple to the Roman god Emperor Augustus himself, all within this city of Caesarea Philippi. Maybe Jesus deliberately chooses this town, this city, this moment, this particular place in order to directly be compared to these other gods, to Baal, Pan, and Augustus, to find out who these disciples actually think they're following. Do they know who he even really is? And so he starts with the easier of the two questions. Who does the world think or say that I am? Now let's look at the world's opinion about Jesus. It's pretty solid, not entirely accurate. Um, there's three popular misconceptions. John the Baptist, now returned from the dead. Elijah, and a prophet like Moses. These are like my sports mind. These are three first ballot Hall of Famers, right? Like this, this is a good group for sure. Like I would argue today, that the world today shares a very high opinion of Jesus. It's Jesus' followers that the world doesn't share 
uh, that high opinion about. They're not so crazy about the followers of Jesus, but they have a pretty high view of who Jesus is. What's that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, of course, the problem with the world then and today is a pretty simple one. The opinion, although good, is not high enough. It doesn't actually get at who Jesus really is. So things then get more serious. They get more personal. Jesus then turns to them and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And this question is designed to move the disciples from being passive recipients to active participation. They're being asked to get off the sidelines and get into the game. He wants them to make a decision. And so Peter's confession is the high point of Mark's gospel. He's, he says, you're the Messiah. And finally, somebody gets it right. Someone's adopted Mark's answer. They've hit the jackpot, right? But what we learn is that he has no idea what this means. He doesn't have a clue what he's saying. He gets the title right, but he gets the meaning of the title wrong. And so in sharp contrast to this idea of a warrior king, this Messiah who would ride in on a white horse with a sword drawn to kick some Roman booty, this is Peter and the disciples' idea of what is supposed to happen. And Jesus is going to redefine Messiahship in totally different terms, in terms of a perfect and selfless love, a suffering, sacrificial love. And so he redefines Messiahship to the point where Peter and the disciples, it's completely unrecognizable to them. To help us understand this violent reaction that Peter has to Jesus, we're going to go with the sports analogy. Any Laker fans? Any Laker haters, Scott? Doesn't matter. You can be either one for this. All are welcome, right? Even Scott. <laughs> so here we go. Coach Frank Vogel, the coach of the Lakers, he calls a meeting, and he's going to have all of his management, his coaching staff, his players, everyone is to be gathered because he's got this big announcement to make. He has a foolproof plan to win an NBA championship, okay? And he wants to share this plan with everyone in the organization. Here he is. He gets everyone together, and he says, our first order of business is we're going to trade LeBron James for two players from the G League, Okay, that's the developmental league. Those are the players that are trying to fight, and most of them never even get a chance to play in the NBA. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, right. No. <laughs> Next big move. It gets better. Okay, Anthony Davis, their other good player. Just because they're just gonna, he's just not gonna start anymore. As a matter of fact, what Coach Vogel reveals is that he's not even sure that Anthony Davis has a spot in the rotation anymore. He's probably just not gonna play him. He's just gonna sit there. And he's going to start one of those G League players in place of Anthony Davis. Okay? Next, he's going to do my favorite. He's going to make their backup center, Dwight Howard. He's going to make Dwight Howard the new starting point guard. Okay? So that's his, this is his pathway to success. And finally, when they get to the NBA Finals, and trust me, they will. They will. When they get there, what he says is they plan on spotting their opponent a three games to none lead. Um, because he's that confident that they're going to win. He knows they're going to win. So he doesn't care. They can have a three-game lead. Games, the series is to four, right? Does this sound like a winning strategy? Like, this is the dumbest. This is the dumbest thing you've ever heard of in sports. This is how the disciples experienced Jesus' redefinition of messiahship. Okay? 
they hear Jesus say that he must suffer, die, and rise. And Peter says, you know what? I'm on the losing team. You think he's on the losing team, right? He doesn't understand this pathway to victory. It doesn't make any sense. He's like, no LeBron, no AD, Dwight Howard at point guard. Like, no, thank you. I don't want to be on this team. And so he needs to correct this horrible mistake that Jesus has made. Messiahs can't suffer. They can't die because everyone knows like a dead Messiah is a false one. They had seen many false messiahs come and go. And like, you know, everybody else, Peter decides, he's like, I don't want to be on the losing team anymore. He's tired of it. He wants to win. And he's certain of one thing. Jesus has made a big mistake. Peter feels obligated to correct that mistake. And here we see him move from confession to confrontation. Peter, representing the 12, grabs Jesus by the arm. Just just picture this scene doesn't want to embarrass Jesus in front of the other disciples, grabs him by the arm, pulls him away a little bit. It's like, Jesus, oh, we got to talk about this, but I don't want to embarrass you in front of everybody else. And he rebukes the Son of God. (laughs) He's just confessed Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of God. He adopts Mark's answer. He pulls the Son of God aside, and he's like, that's not how it's going to work. Like, imagine that scene. Like, it makes me cringe. Jesus' response to Peter is quick, and it's harsh. Get behind me, call some Satan. Like, I've been called a bunch of stuff, um, but so far, I haven't been called that. Don't start, Frank. I see, I can see Frank smiling and his wheels turning over there. Don't even think about it. Satan, of course, means opposer or adversary. And so Peter has unknowingly switched teams. To stay with the sports analogy, he's jumped from Team Jesus to Team Satan, right? All like that. And literally, he's out of line. And so, all right, Adam, are you ready? Do you, want, do, you have, do you want your big part? All right, come here. Okay, Adam's going to do a demonstration. Do you want to be Jesus or Peter? Uh, I'll be Peter. Okay, you'll be Peter. Okay. So, I'm Jesus. Yes, thank you. <laughs> well, you have, the, you have the beard. Okay, I, that was super generous of you, by the way. Okay, so this is what it's supposed to be. Okay, Peter, the disciple, the apprentice, is to follow behind, Right? This is the proper place for a disciple. And what does Peter do? This is what he does, and then he turns around, and he faces me, and he literally, physically, is standing in the way of where I need to go, right? Thank you, give him a hand, that was good. All right, so Peter's nickname, anybody? What's his nickname? The Rock. Rock. Okay. So in this confrontation, he's gone from a disciple who was supposed to be following from behind to an adversary. Satan means opposer or adversary. What is Mark trying to say? He is standing in the way of the thing that God is trying to do. All right? The Rock. That's his nickname. Here are two things that Mark is trying to say, and they're not complimentary, and they both have to do with his name, The Rock. Peter is two things. In the other Gospels, maybe if we remember this, Jesus says, and upon this rock I will build my church. Anybody? Okay, that's not what Mark says. What Mark says is this. Peter the rock is the rocky soil and a stumbling rock or stumbling block placed in front of Jesus to trip him up. So we saw in the parable of the sower The seed that fell in the rocky soil sprang up quickly, but it lacked depth and was scorched by the sun. This is Peter, the rock. 
Peter's moment of glory is like 10 seconds long, okay? That's all he's got. He gets the title right for about 10 seconds, and then he falls away quickly because he cannot comprehend this idea of redemptive suffering. Makes no sense for him. And what, what happens? A distorted view of messiahship, as Adam just demonstrated, will lead to a distorted view of discipleship. Discipleship isn't being out front. It's not about leading. Discipleship is always about following Jesus, following behind the proper place for a disciple. So Jesus is calling disciples, apprentices, followers, those who will follow his lead, right? Um, His way. And so, of course, this teaching, it's really easy to pick on Peter. The hardest part of this teaching is that following Jesus or discipleship means two things that we're probably not super interested in, if we're honest. What does he say? Self-denial and cross-bearing. Sound like fun? (laughs) Self-denial and cross-bearing. This is what he gives us the picture of a disciple. Everyone who heard these words, they knew what cross-bearing meant. They watched people carry the cross. And Jesus says, we we cannot save our lives by trying to preserve them. Rather, it's in the giving of ourselves away. That is somehow how we find and discover our truest selves. And this is the way I think about it. When we love someone, really, really love someone, what do we say? Valentine's Day. Think Valentine's Day. We give someone our heart. This is the kind of language we use. When we offer our heart to another person, right, we're offering that person our whole selves, everything that we have. And we know that when we offer another person our heart, we open ourselves up. We are vulnerable. We open ourselves up to hurt, to heartache, uh, because love can and will be costly. Anyone who's ever given someone their heart will understand that. And this is what I picture Jesus doing. I picture Jesus giving the disciples, giving us his heart. In this redefining messiahship, Jesus is saying he's giving us his heart. And what what does that mean for Jesus? That means that it will cost him everything. Everything. And when we give our hearts to Jesus, when we lose our lives for the kingdom of God, somehow we mysteriously find ourselves. This is what Jesus is saying. Then the scene shifts to the transfiguration, which we only have a minute or two to deal with. This mountaintop transfiguration experience takes place, I think it said six days after Peter's confession. It's just a week later, right? They have this strange experience, six days after Jesus had taught them that he must suffer, die, and rise. And the question, this looming question that Mark wants to answer is, does Peter, will he get it this time? Jesus told him directly. Will Peter get it a week later? The simple answer is no, he doesn't get it. He still doesn't understand. He takes James, Peter, and John with him up this high mountain, Mount Tabor. And I was reading, uh, it's like this big round hill. And from the top, you get this really supposedly spectacular view of Galilee. And I was reading this one person who said that if you want to go to the top of Mount Tabor, you have to get in a taxi. And that this really windy road reminds me of the Peru, the bus ride in Peru for (laughs) Steve. Do you remember that bus? Um, and they say that it's a pretty sketchy ride up this because the taxi drivers go really fast. And so this one guy said that like, 
that God loves the taxi drivers at Mount Tabor because more praying happens in those like 10 minutes <laughs> going up and down the hill than happens the rest of the week. Um, so if you ever get to this place, you've got to get in one of those taxis for a thrill. Um, now Jesus is praying, and this is a strange thing, right? His face changed and his clothes became what? Dazzling white, whiter than anyone could ever bleach them. Is that what it said? Um, that's awesome. And this is really interesting. I found something about the great rabbis of the Jewish tradition, what they said about, might say about something like this. They actually taught that the face of Adam, our first human in scripture, not this, not this Adam, um, that the face of the human had lost its radiance because of sin and that the Messiah would one day restore the radiance of the human face. How cool is that? Just think, think about that for a second. That's pretty awesome. And as if things aren't weird enough, out of nowhere, the disciples see Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus on top of this mountain, right? And so here, Israel's great deliverer, Moses, Elijah, this prophet of hope for the future, they're hanging out with Jesus right in front of Peter, James, and John. But can you put, you got to put yourself in these guys' position. We have to feel for them a little bit. And so the fun part as the reader of Mark's gospel is we get to eavesdrop on the conversation. They use a word that's really, that's the key to the whole thing. They're speaking of Jesus's departure, the Greek for exodus. And so what is happening? This is clearly a reference to Jesus's departure, departure from this earth. This is Jesus's journey to Jerusalem. It confirms what he had just taught six days previous. What this is supposed to be a clue is that Jesus is going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to rise. And the disciples have this mountaintop experience. They witness this glorious moment, and they want to just kind of bask in it and take it in. It's like, I can't really blame him. And so the building project idea for Peter is just further proof that he just doesn't get it. He doesn't yet understand who Jesus is. He still has the title, but he doesn't have the meaning. And so he's now moved from confession, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. He's moved to confrontation. You can, this can't happen, standing in front of Jesus. And now he finally ends up in just utter confusion. He doesn't know what to think. He doesn't have the right words to say. And so Peter just, what does he do? He just starts talking. <laughs> he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know the right words to say, but he just talks when he should be listening to this miraculous conversation that's taking place right in front of him. He decides to build something, to do something, which is what a lot of us might do, when he was supposed to just be still and be silent. If he'd been listening, he might have heard for the second time that the cross, that suffering was the way forward, the way of redemption for the world. But this is the funniest thing in this, this little passage of scripture, is Peter is just sitting there jabbering his jaws. God humorously has to intervene and interrupt Peter because he won't shut up, right? And so this cloud comes over. Think about this God of infinite patience cannot even wait until Peter finishes his ridiculous speech. God envelops him in a crowd, cloud, symbolizing God's presence, and this voice appears that has to drown out the voice of Peter, who's just yapping away like I'm doing right now. And what does God want from Peter? He wants him to stop talking. He wants him to start listening, to stop building, stop doing, and just listen. His voice says, listen to Jesus. Listen to him. 
Sounds like the voice at the baptism if we connect those two things. And so my question for us is, like, how have we been listening? How well have we been listening? How will we respond? How will we live out our answer to Mark's fundamental question of who is Jesus? We face the same temptation that Peter faced. Leave out suffering. Leave out self-denial. And so Mark answers the question, but Jesus models the answer to the question. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, he's the one who ministered, who suffered, who died, who rose all for the sake of the world. It's in the losing of oneself for the other, self-sacrifice, this is what brings us into true life. Conventional wisdom, when we talk about this with people, has no place for suffering. No place for self-denial or sacrifice. Conventional wisdom just says, hey, look out for number one. Um, do whatever it takes to get and stay on top. Hold on to whatever it is you can get. Seek out security by accumulation. And this is not what Jesus says. God challenges this quest saying that life can only be found in the giving away. Life can be found in the giving away. And so Jesus redefines this messiahship to be all about a suffering love. It sounds like the dumbest thing in the world. It sounds like the pathway to losing, not victory. But we forgot to talk about one little word that we don't have time to spend on it now. Suffering and death were not going to be the last word. We missed something. Jesus would suffer, die, and rise. That's the finish. Peter couldn't even hear that word. As soon as he got to the word suffering and death, Peter couldn't hear the good news or the final word in that teaching. That word finishes the idea. Suffering would not be the last word. Resurrection would be the last word. And Peter could not hear this because he wasn't listening. But we got to give him some time. He'll eventually get there. Clearly, Mark wants us to adopt his answer to the question, who is Jesus? Maybe more importantly, Mark wants us to adopt and imitate Jesus's way of living in the world. This self-sacrificing love for the sake of the other. Because that's what discipleship is. And that's what Jesus says. That's how we gain our life, by losing it. Let's pray.